and welcome back to the 2020-30 podcast. Today you are listening to me and not my colleague Magdalena, but we have a special guest here today that I will introduce in a moment, who was also at our summit that we are referring to, obviously. So today's episode is related to last one in a way that was all about relationships. Today we talked about a very different approach of relationships, I would say. We have a certain focus on transparency, but also we will look deeper into how this works in practice, especially in the practice of one of the really pioneering and leading brands in the fashion industry, and that is Askett. And I'm very happy to have uh, you here today in our virtual kind of room together, August, the co-founder of Askett. So please maybe say a word and a brief hello to our audience. Hey guys, uh, super happy to be here and have this conversation with you, Max. Always happy to, to talk about transparency. And I think speaking of relationships, um, there's a lot to be said for our relationships to clothing, which I hope we can dive into today. That we shall do. But first of all, in order to kind of refresh also our memories a bit, especially for our audience that might not even have had the chance to be in Berlin for the last Fashion Week and see and listen to the panel that you also participated in August, we would republish now the panel that uh, was all about transparency in the fashion industry and how it's changing the trade in the fashion industry. Please enjoy now this flashback into our summit. And uh, after that, we will be back and go into a bit of a deep dive with August to look into these different aspects of the pillars of Asket, which is designing purposefully, which is transparency for, yeah, educated uh, choices of customers and last but very not leave the life cycle analysis uh, responsibility which obviously the analysis is part of it uh, which in your case is partly done through take pick systems and reverse logistic and these kind of things so let's jump into the panel discussion on the future of trade with martina of id factory and ty of retraced and moderated by the lovely geraldine de bastian Very, very happy to be back here and to see you all and to be hosting this next discussion and the next session after that. Um, so I'll be quick in introducing the topic and then my speakers who are already waiting patiently by the side of the stage. So in this next session, we want to talk about the future of trade in terms of value chain transparency. This is, of course, a big topic. A lot of stakeholders want to commit to more transparency, want to be more transparent. And of course, new regulations are also demanding different actors in the fashion world to be more transparent in order to comply with these regulations. But very often, it's a question of how do we get there? How do we get the data that's needed to be transparent? How to create systems that different actors can access to make a really yeah, sensible overview of the field and the things we're working in. That's what we want to discuss now with a brand and two platforms, and I'd like to introduce them to you. Please give a warm welcome to August Bard Bringias. Come and join me. August is a co-founder of Asket, 
And the idea behind Ask It, which we'll be telling us more about in a minute, really came from seeing the need, seeing the need to sort of escape the ever faster churning worlds of the fashion industry, create basics that are usable, sustainable in use, and also really transparent in the way that they are made. So Asket has committed to a whole new level of value chain transparency, and we're interested in learning more about that. Please also give an equally warm welcome to Martina Skioma. Welcome on stage, Martina. Martina is, <laughs> nice to have you here, is the head of sustainability at the ID Factory and, and also co-founder of the biggest fashion B Corp community. So the ID Factory um, really helps fashion brands in tracing sustainability uh, along their supply chain and supports a number of different large brands also in this effort like Hugo Boss, Gayox, Tommy Hilfinger and, and others in boosting their transparency and we'll be learning more about how they're doing that in a minute from Martina. And last but not least, please give a big round of applause to Ty Ford. Ty's chief marketing officer at Retraced and really ensures that Retraced vision comes to life, which is helping fashion brands with different kind of collaborations, with different kind of ways of producing to reflect their transparency in the way that they work, in their communication with their clients and different industry partners. And Ty also has a background really coming from the nonprofit world and perhaps also transporting some of these values into the fashion industry. So it's great to have you with us here today as well. So uh, I promised we would learn a bit more about your USP, which is transparency in a way. So I thought we'd begin the conversation with that. Can you perhaps summarize how, how you approach this topic as a whole, like as a vision really for your company, and then practically what that means at Asket? Sure. So transparency is one of our three pillars. The first one is zero compromise garments. Firstly, we need to design purposely. Uh, so we have a permanent collection where every garment is part of our collection forever. So that means that we have a lot fewer pieces of clothing than other fashion companies would have. Uh, purposely designed garments can last longer. They can have longer emotional durability. Secondly, we need transparency uh, to allow consumers and ourselves as companies to make more educated choices. So only by actually showing where our products come from, uh, how they are made, what it takes to create them, can we make educated choices as to those zero-compromise garments that we actually might need. Uh, and the last pillar that we have is life cycle responsibility. As a fashion company, we can't just put out clothing. We also need to take responsibility for the things that we have put out. So we need to help customers to take the clothing back once they reach the end of uh, their life with that first-hand customer. So transparency is an integral part in in these three pillars and an integral part in what we do at Asket. And it is really enabled by the fact that we have this very, very small permanent collection with a standard of eternal relevance for every clothing piece that we create. Um, and initially it actually started as um, an idea to try and help justify the quality of our clothing being uh, an online-only brand in the beginning. So by showing our factories, by showing the seamstresses, telling the stories of how our clothing is made, we can create a digital proxy for quality, which is something tactile, right? But throughout the years, as we became more and more familiar with the fashion industry, the ins and outs, the huge challenges, the manipulative nature of, uh, of the fashion industry, and the vast amount of resources that it consumes, we felt that 
we have not only an opportunity, but an obligation to use our business model to bring all the knowledge, everything that we sort of had traced and uncovered that we wanted to be proud of the, proud of the products uh, and to educate our customers to really help us make uh, better choices. And um, if I understand correctly, you let people in, you let them have a look at different parts of your process, not just for marketing, which of course many do, but really to be part of the sort of checks and balances system of your company. Yeah. Can you just add a bit more detail on Absolutely. how that works? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, we engage our customers already at the design or product development phase. So pretty early on, we realized that even if we have very few products uh, and we design sort of the, 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 the archetypes of, of the wardrobe essentials, so they're pretty safe bets. We still want to involve our customers in that process. Uh, we learned from a few mistakes when we were a bit hasty in the product development that it's better to have uh, sort of start with a limited production run and then we can ask an alpha or beta group of customers what they feel about the, the quality and the fit and get their feedback and then we ramp up production. It both engages the customer and it minimizes waste. So engaging the customer and educating the customer starts already at that stage that the customer feels that they actually have a stake in what we do as a company, which is pretty special in the fashion industry, which is normally pretty black box. Like, you're fed all this stuff and, and, and meant to buy it, right? Here you're part of that process. And ultimately, once we have developed that garment, it becomes available and we show all that information, uh, traceability, um, as far as we can, impact data uh, on the products before at the point of sale on the website and in store before you make a choice. And it's an integral part in all of our communication. The story of how our products are made is we, we communicate that with pride. It's about nerdiness um, and, and the love for the product ultimately, um, which is, you know, uh, made us a, a brand that's highly discussed in you know subreddit threads about raw denim because it didn't start with wanting to be a transparent brand it started with wanting to be a brand that creates fantastic products and we had to be transparent to get there engage the, uh, the customer talk to them uh, about how our products are created to, to justify our products their price points uh, and so it's really integral and ultimately it leads to our customers also being part of our checks and balances system. So sometimes, you know, since everything is out there, it's a self-control mechanism. Customers actually help us controlling our uh, traceability. So we published an Instagram post a few years ago uh, about a car coat uh, with organic cotton farmed in the Qinggang region. And a customer spotted that. And our social media manager hadn't seen that that was part of the traceability information for this product. And immediately we got comments from customers like, oh, that cotton comes from the Qinggang region. Uh, how are you going to respond to that? Turns out that the product was sourced years before. We didn't know about it, but we immediately addressed it. Yeah. So it is transparency is also uh, crowdsourcing control and, and crowdsourcing governance. I hope somebody tweeted that. I think that's a very important point to make and just this whole different kind of approach of openness to doing business. Um, so thanks for sharing that. Of course, I could brings forth a couple of open questions. For instance, how, what kind of fashion can you produce if you want to be this transparent? Or how differently is it complex for organizations, for fashion brands that have yeah, a whole different range of things that they produce? Um, but we'll get back to that. <laughs> Martina, I would love for you to come in and perhaps share a little bit of an overview of how the ID factory works, what kind of 
data do you collect? What kind of analysis do you provide? How does this support the brands that you work with? Just a little bit of an overview of your system and process. Yes, sure. So actually, if uh, Asket is working to give the opportunity to people to have an insight about what is happening in the supply chain when they buy the product, I can say that Daddy Factory is supporting the brand to get confident enough to share this information also with the people. Uh, because as you were mentioning, it's not that easy at a certain point to get out there so transparently with all the information about your processes, your products. We can uh, say that brands are still scared about that because they're not confident enough about what they have behind their supply chain. Uh, if we think about big fashion brands they, that are producing uh, large-scale production in many different countries, if we think simply about a shoe product, actually the de factory started from the future industry. A shoe has 30 different components. Its components means a different material. Each material means a different supplier and different sub-suppliers. So actually it's very difficult to manage different system from different suppliers. So what the D-Factory does, simply, we are a software as a service, we support larger fashion brands as the PVH Proof, both Tommy Figa, Calvin Klein, Jeox, Tamaris, Asnoiver, other big uh, mass market and premium brands to trace their supply chain. We are a kind of intermediary that work between the brand, the supply chain, to collect the data and share this data on one single platform, which is integrated with their system. So we're kind of data collector and harmonization system between different actors. And we work on two different levels uh, that I think are the two main important aspects. One is the supplier engagement. Uh, you need to have suppliers engaged. It's not a problem of technology traceability, but it's a problem of transparency and culture. Are the suppliers ready to share this data with the brand? Is a supplier relationship or is a strategic partnership? Once you have the supplier onboarded, then it's a matter of how you trace, how do you get this data and which data do you get? So we start from uh, physically tracing the materials. So we provide these factories with QR codes, unique digital identifier for having a physical traceability for each piece that is sent down to the factories until the final product. And only once you get to the final product, you can say, I have the entire story linked to the product back to the suppliers. How easy and how hard is it for you to do this work? I said in my opening, very short opening comments to the session that um, everybody is willing and wanting to get on board to improve transparency but there are just gaps, gaps in the kind of data we collect, how harmonized this data or how standardized it is. So how easy or f how hard is it for you to do this work? I would say that the defactor started back in 2015 uh, and it's all about uh, which kind of data you want to collect and uh, what's the quality of the data you want to collect. Back then in 2015, the main focus was on compliance. There was the Detox My Fashion campaign from Greenpeace. And so the focus was of having a physical traceability of the material to having the guarantee that actually these materials was chemically and physical compliant. And that was the beginning. After right now, if we think about the quality of data, I will tell you a different story. 
because the objective is changed. Now we have different legislations that are requiring a different level of traceability and data accuracy. Let's think just about the French decree that has just been approved and entered into force in January that is requiring to share on the final product, actually, the, each production phase is where it has been carried out. Uh, that means that it's not enough to having the chemical data linked to the product, but you need to have all the processes traced, the product traced, the geographical location of the product. And for doing that, you need to be confident that you trust your supplier. So yes, it's a quite long process. It's not easy, I can tell. Sometimes we, we got in a situation where the brand was willing to trace its supply chain. The technology was ready, but the supplier wasn't willing to share this information. And then it's up to the brand to decide if they want to continue this partnership. Or if the, the supplier doesn't want to share the data, they need to change the supplier. And that's, I think, the most difficult point because you, you are in front of a reality then. And also the due diligence is asking that. It's saying, I mean, you need to be confident of the suppliers you're working with if you want to continue and then share and be transparent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And and of course, with a view on the pressure points coming very much also from the regulatory side, which of course are also hopefully influenced by consumers slash voters um, to increase the pressure points in the system. Ty, can you or do you want to add anything to that since you've been nodding? Have you had the situation of like having to change suppliers because of a willing lack of willingness to share Data. For sure, for, for sure. And I think it, it was a lot different a few years ago, only when traceability was not sort of a, a big thing yet. Um, then we really need to... I went on roadshows to try and convince our factories to share their subcontractors and the subcontractors of the subcontractors with us because uh, they thought that we were trying to circumvent them to sort of cut them out and shave a few cents off the, uh, the cogs. But uh, all we wanted was transparency to be able to really know where our things come from. So that has been a big challenge. Um, and, and at times we have had to change uh, suppliers, uh, either because traceability turned out that we were working somewhere where we didn't want to work, uh, which is the exact purpose of traceability, right? Or because they were unwilling to cooperate. Right. Thank you. Um, Ty, of course, we want to hear how this works at Retrace, how you're working with different plans and different stakeholders. And if you can also give us a kind of similar overview that Martina did, how your processes and systems work, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So Retrace, uh, we see ourselves as specialists in sustainability management and compliance management, as well as traceability and fashion. And we are also a platform uh, where we connect uh, brands, fashion companies, and their supply chain onto one place. To, to help with the communication and the data exchange in a more efficient way. So everyone's got a profile on the Retrace platform. Um, and we, we do this for a few reasons. Um, well, we do this in different, different ways. We collect data on the company level, of course. So who your company is, the, who your vendors are, uh, what scope certificates they have, what's their production data, what policies do they have towards workers' rights. Uh, then we also do it on supply chain level. So how does that information connect with their suppliers? Transaction certificates, receipts, uh, as well as product level. So really getting into the, the materials used um, because that sets up the basis for any impact assessment. Um, and that, that's all been built with the companies in mind um, because they, they said, hey, this is what we need. A lot of it right now, the pushes the, the supply chain laws that we'll probably talk about. Um, they need to understand where the information is coming from, what is it that they need to have on the base level so that they can comply and report. So the whole idea with, with Retrace is to not just be another better version of an Excel sheet. Of course, we collect all the data in an efficient way, but we also allow them to analyze the data uh, to see what risks they have in their supply chain, 
giving them the basis to how they, how they can prioritize the risk uh, and do the preventive actions necessary, and then be able to report on it. Our approach is, is a little different, so we give them the platform, but we also give them a lot of the guidance. Uh, we know that this is a mountain of issues coming up. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as like the Sherpa, so we kind of guide them to get to the top, uh, but also help them chart the path so they can conquer future mountains to come. What a nice analogy. Can you give a little bit of oversight? We've talked about compliance with the changing legal situation of the current regulatory situation, both Germany and EU level, and um, yeah, and where you perhaps in that see current challenges for companies to comply, or again, the what data do we actually have question that we just addressed. Absolutely. So, I mean, from the EU level, um, especially with regards to the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, uh, companies really need to start to assess and think about, okay, how is their business model affecting their sustainability? And how are external sustainability factors such as climate change, human rights issues affecting their performance? Because now not only do they have to, to understand what's happening, but they also have to report on it. And then investors and other stakeholders are using this type of information on par with financial information to make decisions. So this is the EU's attempt to, to kind of incentivize more sustainable economy. Um, the, the, the range for that is, is tough and the information has to be reliable and has to be available digitally. So a lot of companies are really starting to say, okay, well, how do we do this? What's, what's the guidelines? Where do we start? We always say it, it's really about the meaningful engagement with your suppliers. Uh, it is about transparency first for yourself. Uh, of course, the consumers want it to do, but once you can understand who you're working with, what risks are involved, you can take the necessary actions like you were talking about, August, um, to, to get in line. And if you can do that, then you can start to, to get ready for all these compliance issues and regulations to come. In this sort of dynamically changing field, the question of how um, compliance might change how companies work or even how they calculate risks um, is, is a topic. Also in regard to how costs for sustainability are currently calculated. Do you have any advice that you want to share in regard to how companies might have to reassess um, sustainability risks and, and what kind of methodologies even can be used? Well, first and foremost, I think their, their mindset will need to change. Um, Regulations will not be solutions. They are not solutions, but they do provide the opportunities, right? So you do have the opportunity now to, to work with your suppliers, to collect information, opportunity to really, instead of just collecting data points, but translate that data point into information that you can act upon. Uh, again, going back to, to wonderful example. And lastly, be, get ready for future regulations to come. So regulations are setting the, I guess, the boundaries. Um, they're always a little bit too late. Uh, but, you know, now is the time for us and, and for brands to really stop thinking about, okay, this is such a process, okay, I'll do it now, but to actually be a little bit more proactive in this. So the mindset of what, what sustainability risk could mean for their business um, needs to change a little bit. They need to be less reactive. Uh, of course, they need to react, but they also need to really think future forward. I completely agree with you, Ty, especially because if you think about sustainability as a risk, then sustainability becomes a cost. Because there is a risk of non-social compliance that increase your fees and you can be fined. Uh, there is a risk linked to uh, reputational risks. If you are not compliant, your brand identity is, is going to lose a lot. Uh, and again, you're going to lose your loyal customer. But if you look at sustainability from a different perspective, from a very operational, I would say, perspective, so meaning improving efficiency, reducing the waste across your supply chain, then it's no more a risk and a cost, but it's actually an opportunity. 
And um, why am I saying that? I think it's strictly linked to the way, for instance, you collect the data. Uh, because if you are collecting data that are not reliable, uh, then you cannot use this data also for making systemic choices about how you manage your operations. Uh, while if you are using data that are primary data, that actually are data that comes from your supply chain, then the approach is completely changed. I make you a very simple example. So actually with our brand clients, we uh, realize after several years of traceability and tracing the materials they use in production, that the actual material that the, the brands buy is no, cannot be compared with the actual material used in production because there is systemic waste across a long entire supply chain that is not mapped and the brand cannot control. While if you trace the material and you have a systemic system for collecting this data, you can define new methodologies for using the waste, creating circular collection, uh, reduce the amount of material used in production, and that's economic uh, saving. So uh, if we stop looking at sustainability as a risk, but we see as a source of an economic advantage, or uh, economic resource, then of course you will see that these brands will be more profitable in the future. If they see sustainability as just, uh, there is the new regulation that is coming up, we need to focus on that, com being compliant and forget what we're doing, then the next season is gonna be even worse. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. No, again, in case you want to add anything, otherwise I, I was going to ask. I got too much excited. No. <laughs> it's very good to feel the excitement about these topics on stage here. How are you approaching the whole compliance with these legal frameworks at mm. Ascot? And uh, yeah. I mean, we're a small company, right? So it can always be a bit daunting with uh, sort of compliance and regulation um, because there, there might be costs involved. There might be sort of system structures uh, and resources uh, needed. But, but honestly, and, and tapping into what we said before, you know, uh, seeing sustainability as a risk or compliance as a problem that it's kind of absurd, right? The fashion industry has been operating cynically, manipulatively, and opportunistically for the past decades uh, at great expense of people and planet. Uh, and now we're leveling the playing field. You shouldn't be able to do that anymore. You shouldn't be able to extract resources at, you know, uh, that pollute and, and, and uh, use people at great risk in supply chains and then dump the products <laughs> in a different country where you make the consumer feel insecure about sort of body ideals or whatever. It's just an absurd system. Uh, so to me, it's all about, it's about integrity uh, and pride in the product. Um, if you really, really love what you're doing, if you have pride in your product, uh, it comes naturally that you want to know where it comes from. You want to have good relationships with your suppliers. You need to have that to create a great product. Um, and um, then the legwork in actually going all the way in, in, in tracing isn't going to come hard. It will come pretty naturally. And of course, it's easier for us to say that because we started with this approach. We started with a very tight collection with a promise and a principle to never create anything that creates needs, but only address existing needs uh, and then it's easier um, but I think we need to see it as an opportunity to level the playing field to make it harder to you know extract and exploit and level the playing field for everyone and luckily more and more founders designers brands and as yourself have incorporated this mindset really into their work and luckily there's increasing support and in how to how to then make it a practical thing before we run out of time i'm going to ask very briefly if there's any questions or comments from the audience hand went up in the middle here would you is there a microphone great let's have these two gentlemen share their comments then please or questions Joachim Schirmacher, I'm a trade journalist. 
um, I like to know the cost of the traceability. So when I, I have the value chain of the product, and then I have the second value chain with the traceability and all the certificates. Uh, I would interest it, how much is it in percent or in money? So from our perspective as a small brand, one of the costs is obviously it's, it's salary. Our product developer, he spends probably half of his time tracing our products, both existing ones to get them to where they need to be and new ones that we develop. So his role is very different from a product developer in a more traditional fashion company. So that's, of course, one cost. Um, but that needs to be set in proportion to the lifetime of the product um, because it never leaves our shelf, right? It's there forever. Um, so then it's very small. Then, of course, buying certain types of uh, certified materials will add an extra cost, like, you know, a, a GOT-certified organic farmed cotton. Um, that cost should be justifiable due to the higher costs of actually uh, farming, ginning, producing that cotton. But, of course, there's a lot of questionable aspects to certification processes also where, you know, you don't really know if you're paying sort of two euros more per kilo uh, or per meter length of a shirt fabric that's organic, how much actually goes to the, to the farmer uh, versus how much goes to the certification body. And we know recently with all the, the uh, sort of the crisis in organic cotton and, and verifying uh, organic cotton in India in particular that um, it's, it's not a perfect system. Thank you. Are there further questions or comments? The, yes, please. Yes, um, I would like to ask you, I mean, you are retracing now regarding who's producing something. Uh, I guess we have a huge situation in the textile and garment industries, it's uh, the wages, the salary of the workers, which even in sustainable brands often not really give the people the chance to educate children or whatever we How do you think, especially the two certificates here, how to, yeah, do you discuss this with your companies, with Hugo Boss or whoever, about the necessary living wages? Because I guess it's a huge thing which will come more and more up in our business. Just in a few different ways. So it's a risk. Um, there are, it's a risk in certain, certain countries that um, it's been known that you know, people don't pay their employees a fair wage. Uh, we have a risk calculator, so based on global uh, indices. And, you know, if you have a set of suppliers in a certain country, uh, it, the risk calculator will kind of flag that as, hey, this is a high risk for, for um, like insufficient wages. And then you, we can see, do your suppliers have some type of documentation, some type of certification? Do they have an audit that ensures that they do actually pay um, fair wages in that. So it is all about kind of get the right data and has that data been audited? Has it been, has it been um, kind of scrutinized? But if you have that type of data, at least in your supply chain, you can already start to, to, to negate that risk and to, to kind of mitigate against that. So it, it's just one way to, to kind of understand it, like who you're working with and how far have they addressed certain types of risk. Um, but it's, it's certainly a challenge that, that I think we need to kind of continue to improve upon. Uh, Yeah, but, but also companies know that if, if they get caught uh, in supply chains where they're, they're not uh, paying or their, their suppliers are not paying fair wages, uh, there's a lot of blowback. So it, it's a risk that they definitely take seriously, at least our, the companies that we work with. 
I will answer quite shortly because I see. Um, so actually, we as traceability provider cannot verify the social uh, sustainability of suppliers, but we can uh, give the proof of the brand that this supplier is actually a supplier. Because what is happening is that maybe the brand knows direct suppliers or its direct suppliers are telling him who are the sub-suppliers, but they have no guarantee that actually there is a transaction between this actor. And especially if we go down the supply chain to the third supplier or fourth suppliers, maybe what is happening is that they have no identity of this supplier. So even if something is occurring, they are not considered responsible for that because they have not traced that. The due diligence is making a shift with this perspective because now you're responsible uh, until where you can have a purchasing power, so until where you can trace, to track and monitor if they are compliant. So since this regulation has been already proved in Germany, that will require companies to consider traceability a key asset for them. And what we do as the de facto to support them further we integrate in our system third-party um, auditor that can audit for social environmental compliance. But our role as a traceability provider is to actually give the guarantee who's your suppliers and going down the supply chain. I don't know if I answer completely. And otherwise, hopefully, you can maybe take a yeah. tiny offstage moment to clarify even more. I want to thank the three of you for sharing what you're working on and how you're approaching this topic of transparency and traceability. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Martina, August, Ty, it was great to talk to you. Thank Let's you for having us. So, August, this, I think, I mean, it was such a lovely discussion, obviously, could go on forever. Uh, we don't have that time on the stage, but that's even the better uh, kind of reason for having you here today and going into more, a bit more deep dive and looking more into what does it all mean in practice. I mean, now we heard from two different platforms that help brands and stakeholders to become more transparent with technology, with software as a service, um, as so many startups uh, provide them today. So I think... In that technology is there nowadays, obviously it can always get better. I'm sure we need some other solutions still, but I, I feel the technology is not the problem anymore so much at the moment to find solutions for our sustainability challenges. I think one of the really interesting parts that was mentioned in the panel was uh, Tai saying that one needs to kind of change from being a reactive actor as a brand nowadays to becoming more proactive. And for me, this is something which um, Asket has been doing from the beginning with kind of how you engage with your customers, even with the product development, etc. So let's kickstart our little deep dive with this. What do you think, like, are you already a pioneer of being proactive and, and what is the role of, of the engagement with the customer and in that sense, maybe also the culture of fashion in, in the retail markets? Yeah, I mean, um, starting off with whether or not uh, we're sort of proactive as a brand and company or not, I think um, it's important to note that uh, when we started in 2015, we didn't necessarily start uh, Asket to change the fashion industry or to create even a, you know, 
sustainable, if you will, uh, brand. We started Ask It because we were extremely frustrated from a personal perspective with the amount of clothing that we have in our wardrobes and the very, very small share of clothing that we actually use and love on a daily basis. And that is because we're subjected to the you know, tons and tons and tons of new styles that the fashion industry is throwing at us with, you know, collections going from two a year to four a year to 52 drops to fast fashion giants like Shein throwing out 27,000 new styles a week at that pace. The product of the industry is compromised. Companies can't develop products that are actually considered well-made operating at that pace and with that type of price competition. So as a result, we identified that the clothing that we actually need and actually use, it's very, very few items. It's the timeless wardrobe staples, the stuff that's been around forever. So our decision from the beginning was to operate with a very, very firm principle, which is that we shall only create one single permanent collection throughout the duration and the lifetime of our company. So if we're creating a permanent collection, every style needs to be permanently relevant or eternally relevant. And that means that it's just very few styles that we can make. We're trying to address existing needs, not creating artificial needs. So what that means is that it's very few styles. It's very, very limited, uh, the amount of garments that we can create. And we only do, you know, two to three styles a year, building up to a permanent collection that eventually will be maybe 50 garments for men's and maybe 50 for women's. So what that is, is basically, you know, it's less is more, right? Um, and less is more and doing fewer things, but doing them better and allowing yourselves to doing them better is a philosophy that, you know, seamlessly goes hand in hand with more, you know, resource minded production and consumption. So in that sense, you know, proactivity is built into our DNA from the beginning because it's that model and that platform of a permanent collection and the requirements of our garments to be around forever that allows us to you know invest without limits in our garments whether it's with resources in terms of tracing in terms of product development in terms of creating the best fits or you know involving our customers uh, in the dialogue of developing these garments slowly together with us it's just a fundamentally way different way of creating clothing a more respectful and, and considered way that creates garments that have a dignity clothing in the way that it used to be 100 years ago so in one way what we were doing from the beginning was very old school, but in, a, in another way, it was exactly that, that the fashion industry and the companies out there today are struggling with today, that with the model that is predominant today with collections and, you know, that relentless creation of novelty, uh, it is impossible to operate in a responsible way. It is impossible to trace something all the way if it's just going to be on the shelf for a few weeks. And it's impossible to create a really well-fitting, high-quality garment that someone's going to love for a long time because you're building in designed obsolescence or planned obsolescence into the product. So it's an old-school approach that, at the same time, has allowed us the proactivity to do things the right to do not just do things the right way with you know certifications and sustainability uh, credentials, but to do the right things from the beginning. And I love how during the panel you have put it in a way that for for Ask it, it was at the beginning you saw it as an opportunity in this field and you saw that there was a, well how you describe it now in this kind of old school approach was actually an opportunity for the future and then only with time and bringing in your own experience and and looking into supply chains the value chains 
you found an obligation in actually becoming also more sustainable and becoming more conscious about your, your way all the time. I thought this is a very interesting journey and such a great example on, on how else one can do it because so many, for so many existing brands, it feels like an obligation and it feels so heavy, you know, and obviously there's complexity, but I always wonder why don't you take it as a challenge in a positive, fun, sporty way, you know, you mm. can finally do things differently and yeah, can have you can have more meaning in your everyday life again if you're part of a brand that takes things differently i guess eh? and i feel obviously ask it uh, being one of them and i mean i must say I mean, i've been following your journey for so many years now and and really always been fascinated with this clarity that you're bringing in this focus and and i i guess this is also obviously such an important part I feel funnily it, it all fits very well with also your kind of your Nordic style. And, you know, it's an overall very well-rounded brand, I would say. But what I Thank always you. wonder is, you also touched on less is more. For me, this is an important part or to think of. And, and obviously we in general need to look into our mindsets and are we even capable with our current kind of cultural habits and our mindsets to become sustainable or more relevantly more sustainable. And does that, do we need different concepts also in different areas? Because less is more, mm. for me, I see there is a relevant opportunity with this also, especially as a business model in, let's say, Europe, possibly parts of America and, and so on. But I feel if I visit Asia or also parts of Africa, South America, there's still I don't feel that less is more is so attractive for, you know, communities that are just starting to consume and getting a feeling of this sweet life of, uh, you know, consumer goods. Mm. So I wonder how universal is what you do at the moment and where do you see limitations for what you do at the moment? Mm, exactly. So, I mean, just to define what less is more means and why it's so powerful in the fashion industry, you know, the industry is creating more than 100 billion garments every year and it's growing every year and 60% of that has been thrown away or incinerated within 12 months in Sweden where we consider ourselves being you know super conscious we consume 14 kilos of new clothing every year that's more than you can bring onto your flight you know you need to check it in and then we throw away eight kilos at the end of the year so less is more means to reduce what we're extracting reducing the the resource extraction of limited finite resources on our planet create fewer things that last longer, that we wear longer, that we have relationships longer. And with that, you know, replacing the need to replace these garments uh, at a faster rate. And that's a simple householding mechanism. You know, right now with the cost of living crisis and whatnot, we're all looking at how can we make meaningful, you know, uh, make our things last longer from a cost perspective. And clothing, similar to energy and, and other things, have been too cheap for too long. We haven't been paying the full price. But now, when all of a sudden we need to look over our, you know, household income and economy, it all of a sudden makes sense. And it can be quite sort of uh, challenging and fun also to see that you can actually save. It makes both uh, environmental and financial sense to have fewer things that maybe cost a little bit more upfront, but they'll last longer and you'll be happier with them longer. So addressing the culture point of view and whether or not this approach is sort of universal, I absolutely think it is. And right now, it's not like certain markets are, you know, it's not like the Western developed economies are more ready to, you know, consume less than sort of developing markets. I think that we have been, we've become accustomed to the fact that clothing is so cheap 
uh, and so accessible that and, and fashion and, and new styles are so accessible that it's easier to buy something new than to repair what you have. So this is a challenge that is global. It, it is not like we have, you know, we're ready for a more sustainable and, and considered lifestyle in the Nordics, but not in Southern Europe or whatever. It's a universal problem, but the solution is equally sort of universally viable. And, and I think it can be made quite uh, attractive to the consumer if we, you know, start talking more about the relationship to our clothing, if we start to educate the customer about what it actually takes to create our clothing. Right now, no one going into, uh, you know, an H&M store or whatever and buying a top for, for five euros or five dollars considers where that actual piece of clothing came from because it's become so cheap. You just You just buy it and you throw it away. If we were to require that companies and fashion brands actually told the full story where does the cotton come from? Where is the fabric woven? Where's the yarn spun? Who's sewing this? And what does it actually take to create this piece of clothing that we've been taking for, for granted for all too long? If we would see that and visualize that journey, we would be much more willing to pay a little bit more. Uh, we would respect that garment more since it would probably have to cost more because no one would want to show the way that fast fashion clothing is done. You would have to make it uh, you know, better to actually be able to promote uh, what it took to, to create it. And since it then would cost more, uh, we would also be more motivated to do that research and to, once we make a decision, to take care of it. It's kind of like if you compare other other consumer goods or, you know, less frequent investments like furniture or, or cars or housing arrangements, apartments, houses or whatever. No one just goes and buys any of that just like that. You do your research. You invest a lot of time and emotion in it, and then you come to an educated decision, and then you use that car for a long time, you use that sofa for a long time, you live in that house or apartment for a long time, and you build an emotional bond with those objects, and that's the type of emotional bond that we need to create with clothing. The same way that it was 100 years ago with, you know, our grandparents and their grandparents. At that time, no one was switching outfits just for just for fun, buying Panama hats for a weekend in uh, Mallorca just to throw it away afterwards. It cost more. We had a better connection to what it actually took to create these items because manufacturing was closer to home and we took care of those garments longer. There was dignity and pride in it. And that's what we need to restore. And I think that's a universally viable concept to have dignity in our clothing and to feel a sense of pride and emotional gratification in buying few but very well-considered things instead of that short-term material satisfaction of leaving a, you know, a town after a shopping spree with lots of shopping bags and then quite soon after feeling a little bit uncomfortable with all that stuff that we bought. Yeah, who doesn't know that feeling? I guess that's unfortunately also universal in many ways. We could probably fill a couple of podcasts with you. I mean, there's so many um, things I would like to kind of talk about now, but I have to pick one or two. So I think that for me, that aspect, I mean, you also referred back to, you know, how we used to value. I mean, we is always like a very general concept, obviously, there. I, I see what you mean. And I think um, it's always very valuable to also look back, as for many reasons, I think I really also value and, and appreciate that even the industry is starting to look back maybe even into ancient technologies and you know there's always this talk like okay we need to look back into what the native uh, people have been doing because some of those relationships with nature and how some of their techniques how to deal with them seem to be way smarter <laughs> very mm. different lifestyle but uh, very smarter in the impact but at the same time obviously we're living in a totally different world and most people 
thanks to this what used to be called democratization of fashion where H&M was obviously also you know you mentioned them already and and you are kind of both nordic players let's say and have a certain kind of similarity on 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 that level at least they enabled um this thing that fashion has become such a fun aspect And I mean, nowadays, Shein, they just opened uh, a pop-up store here in Berlin, just uh, opposite to one of the uh, most expensive shops here, the KDV. So yeah, there's crazy things happening. There's a, it's, it's a whole different world than 100 years ago. And I, I would claim there's nothing necessarily wrong or even nothing to a certain degree that we can change in wanting to use fashion as a, also a fun aspect, as expression. Um, and this is part, from my point of view, of the fashion culture. You express yourself. And nowadays, you know, people express themselves in like milliseconds in different ways per day through social medias, etc. So I think we do need to acknowledge that there is a whole different approach to to certain culture to communication to yeah your relationship with things and and also with mm. people but also i see that i mean that doesn't mean also that the old school approach is wrong it's just i feel we need to adopt certain things we also need to use the technology i mean if if the technology is part of of the communication then then i feel this is important to also make out ways and show ways that you can still have fun with fashion but at the same time use less or create mm. less impact. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things you anyway said in, in the panel, and you repeated it a few times, showcasing how important it is, that we are creating a, a level playing field with transparency and that is this is overdue. So I think, yeah, we have a few aspects there that are becoming yeah a new or, or is laying out the ground for a possible new culture. But I still have endless questions. How will this really work out? How can fashion, yeah, also indulge people to consume differently again? Because I also mm. feel this is actually one of maybe the even bigger um, impacts that the fashion industry can have besides changing their own resource use. It's changing the mindsets of people. You referred also to... You know, the manipulation of the fashion industry, uh, I guess you mostly refer to the marketing. But yeah, what would be a meaningful marketing way? We always try to, mm. you know, explain to our clients, uh, you should try to be honest in your marketing. Mm. This obviously feels very like even an ambivalence, but it, it doesn't need to be, we think. So yeah, what's your approach to these elements, to these elements of marketing, to to your communication and and how do you... Yeah, get people really to that. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Obviously, if I would only own Asket, I would, to be honest, feel a bit plain, let's say. I would definitely have a tendency wanting to have all kind of accessories to, you know, pimp it up again for certain elements. Mm. Is that something like, yeah, how do you play with these kind of things? How do you feel yourselves into your customer and their wishes for mm. being glamorous in some days and having more than mm. just the basics. And again, how do you see your role in there and, and how does this work together in, the, in this global world at the end? Yeah. No, and I think, I mean, we can't understate the cultural significance of clothing and as a means to express ourselves and, and for individuality. But there's a difference in finding gratification or, or fun, if you will, in your clothing and in consumption. Because what the fashion industry has done is to move the gratification out of the actual product and into the consumption. Right. It is just the consumption and the replacement. And that 
has perverted our relationship to clothing. We're not actually having fun sort of feeling satisfied and gratified with our clothing as a, you know, not even a hardcore fast fashion shopper, I would argue, is actually satisfied or happy because that it's just about the consumption. We don't have a meaningful relationship to the clothing. So I guess to address the question, like, yeah, I mean, I can totally see that, yeah, not everyone's going to want to go head to toe and ask it. And we don't foresee some kind of future where uh, dystopic future where everyone's going around and just in gray and navy and ask it. I mean, that would be kind of fun. But uh, but that's not the way we, we think things are going to work because of individuality. But we need to steer away sort of, you know, shopping is not a leisure. Shopping can't be a hobby. It's absurd. You know, there's shopping malls and, and tourist destinations that basically pitch to customers to come and shop. And that's just, you know, if you translate to what is that, you're pitching resource extraction as fun, consuming things that are made under terrible conditions, you know, uh, polluting rivers, polluting the air under horrible manufacturing conditions and labor conditions for the workers to consume that at a price that, you know, absolutely doesn't uh, cover the true cost to then throw it away. That is not the future. So what we see is that, you know, if we take the example of Asket and our fairly plain, if you will, or, or simple, timeless basics or timeless it essentials. It wasn't meant offensive, obviously. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm no, just no, a very no. colorful person and I love your stuff. Absolutely. But <laughs> no offense taken, no offense taken. But I think that those garments that have been around forever that we create, they play a role in everyone's wardrobe. Everyone needs, you know, the, the fundamentals, uh, you know, a pair of raw denim, a white T-shirt, uh, a gray sweater. And then, as you say, you can you can add stuff to it, uh, accessorize. You can add your limited edition sneakers or your, your patinated vintage Levi's trucker jacket or whatever. But those items we can find, you know, you can find them secondhand, you can find them vintage. And uh, again, by by reducing what we consume to fewer and better things where we have the actual means to pay a little bit more uh, for these longer lasting items, we are also enabling ourselves then to spend more maybe on, you know, a collectible or, you know, th then you can actually prioritize a little bit reasonably and not buy 10 new tops at a fast fashion retailer, but instead save and buy that one, you know, whether it's a Chanel handbag or if it's, you know, that sort of salvage denim, super unique uh, denim that you want. It's about focusing and, and going back to a mindset where, you know, we save and we strive to make educated and invested decisions in the few things that we actually own. And that doesn't have to be boring, quite the opposite. Fewer but better things allows you to actually spend more maybe on the stuff that you really want instead of just splurging on stuff that you're not going to be happy with. So again, it's not a human right to change your outfit every week. That has been the sort of, that's the result of, as you said, in quotation marks, you can't see me now if you're listening, in quotation marks, the, the democratization of fashion, which is not democratic at all. It's just that because it's not democratic for the people who made the clothing. It's not a human right to change our outfits every week. And we don't need to do that to have fun and a sense of pride in our clothing. And we don't need that to express individuality. We can do that in a much more considered approach. Yeah. Well, thanks for this 
Yeah, this is how, how, how you put it. I just wonder, I mean, anyway, we are coming to the end also of this little uh, deep dive, but uh, let's finish it well. I thought you really made an amazing point there at, right at the beginning already that we should kind of maybe pin and also um, um, go back to that at some other point, but I would like to kind of recap that. Basically, I understood it in a way that the fashion industry in the last couple of decades, I guess, has further and further decoupled that fun moment that was attached to the product itself, which maybe nowadays like still a Dior or Louis Vuitton product still has, and has it kind of has translated it onto the moment of consumption, the action of consumption. And and that obviously to a certain degree is, is smart because you don't even sell a product anymore. So the product's quality doesn't make so much difference. Exactly. But at the same time, it's maybe a very, very dramatic cultural background in the consequences on how the consumption patterns have changed. I think this point is really interesting, really worth holding on to that. And it fits also, I mean, the, it creates for me obviously the question then how do we get to how do we bring back meaning to the products and obviously you do that in many different ways but it also reminds me on one of the things you said in the panel that basically your whole storytelling around um, the transparency of your factories like showcasing where you produce how you produce that this was kind of your digital proxy for quality how you as a online only D2C brand were able to kind of communicate quality and I think this was also very smart a thing that I can only recommend brands in our audience to listen to and, and maybe get inspired by that you can use transparency as a tool for your marketing and getting into a more meaningful kind of marketing more meaningful exchange with your customers and also maybe this only thing already yeah? are they just consumers to you or are they customers what's your relationship With, with them how do you call them and why do you call them like this or like that how do you treat them so all these I think very interesting to finish off maybe I mean I wanted to talk actually about another role model that used to be out there for us uh, called Honest Buy by Bruno Peters I wondered if you guys were inspired by him and uh, of course at the same time maybe that was too early but you guys actually, I think we... have Yeah, we did see, I remember when we started up, we came across his brand and it, it was after we had started, after we had set out with our principles of the permanent collection and, and and transparency. But at that time, he was going much further than we were. And I think now we've caught up. If I recall correctly, the brand shut down a few years after. Yeah. But right now, we're proud to say that we are at a level of transparency and in, in where you know, breaking down our products into their components and every component into all the processes that it took to create it on a level that is that far exceeds uh, where even he was back in the day. But yeah, that was very inspirational uh, to see. Um, he was uh, definitely ahead of his time there. Great, because that's, I think, somehow I thought would be lovely to give this shout out to Bruno Peters, who definitely was a very uh, strong pioneer there possibly a bit too early but even the more i'm happy to see now that you guys are rocking it and that you are also proving the business case and proving the opportunity that is out there and yeah i think i mean with this 
I would also like to end our conversation today. Obviously, to all in our audience, I would, as usually, always recommend to also check out the show notes. We will put in a few links to for further details and everything that is kind of relevant, at least as far as we can judge that in this context. I'm really happy to have had you here, August. That was uh, such a pleasure. And I think we should definitely repeat that. We will follow your journey further and further. Hope to have you also back at the summit at some point and yeah so in that sense uh, i don't know do you have a few kind of um, last words for for our audience uh, how they can best follow your journey or maybe also get in touch with you yeah absolutely so you know obviously you can follow us on our website askit.com instagram uh, askit and if you're more interested in sort of uh, business updates and business model updates our linkedin would be a good place to follow and you can always reach out to me via linkedin as well august bard bringius uh, don't hesitate i'm not great at checking my inbox there but from time to time i do check in great we'll put all that in the show notes so please check them out and thanks again dear august this was lovely next episode will obviously still be referring to our january's edition number five of 2020 30 the berlin fashion summit and we will revisit one of the most exciting and possibly also most educative uh, panels i think It was the Intersectional Feminist Leadership Berlin's Fashion Future panel featuring Cora and Max of UNS and Axel and Seville of Platte Berlin, moderated by the lovely Fatima Nyoya. I'm very happy to revisit this panel. They're all already members of the 2020-30 family now for a few seasons and uh, such a valuable win for the overall community. So I hope that uh, you also will appreciate us revisiting this important panel discussion and uh, yeah, looking forward to that. Hopefully see you all back or hear you all back in the next episode. And last but not least, I would like to leave a little teaser here for edition six of the 2020-30 Summit coming back in July for the Berlin Fashion Week. And after having talked so much about traceability, transparency, relationships, etc., all these progressive ideas around regenerative culture, regenerative business, we have now decided to go through something very hands-on and practical as a case study, really. And we have chosen denim to do so. So we will still talk about regeneration. We will still talk about the best practices and the most innovative developments in the industry. But we will use denim to show how it has been done in the last 10 years, how one of the most dirty childs of this lovely and but also very complicated fashion industry has become actually a driver of innovation, of sustainability and not last but not least circularity. So... Stay tuned for also our newsletters to learn more about the program in the summer. And maybe just as a little teaser to the teaser. So I'm saying goodbye for now and would just like to remember you to follow us on all major podcast platforms if you like. And therefore, hopefully not miss any of our new episodes and to learn more about the upcoming summits. You can obviously also uh, check out our website on 202030summit.com or follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn. And yeah, also please don't be shy to send us feedback. We love critical, constructive feedback and we'll definitely try to follow up on that. Thanks again for listening. 
It was a pleasure and hope to see and hear you soon again.